David. How's it going, Michael? Not too bad. Quite a week. Yep. I, I missed you at APAC. That's that's true. How was it? You know, uh, it, 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 it was how it always is. Um, it's an overwhelming number of people. Pretty much anyone that I've ever interacted with on anything uh, is there. Um, the mood in the plenaries is different from the mood in the breakouts but overall it's uh, people come so they can feel really good about the u.s israel relationship and i think that most people leave there feeling good about the u.s israel relationship so the real the real question is how do you think benny gantz did last week you wrote a column saying that it was a huge mistake for benny gantz to go to apac and operate on uh on Bibi netanyahu's turf but uh, we had quite a few curveballs this week that that made uh, his appearance uh, uh, his appearance in DC uh, not what you would have expected, I would imagine. Yeah, so um, politically, he really lucked out. So, you know, t- taking him on his own, he gave his speech. I thought he he did a decent job. He he looked and sounded like every other Israeli prime minister from you know who is not Netanyahu. <laughs> He gave he gave a, a good speech. He filled it with the hawkish stuff that that American Jews, particularly at APAC, like to hear. He talked about the, the dangers and how important it is for American Jews to have Israel's back. And uh, he talked about uh, American Jewish and Israeli Jewish unity. And uh, he, I thought his best line was the one about the Western Wall. He's been to the Western Wall, and it's it's long enough to accommodate everybody. And uh, that obviously got got big applause. Um, but, you know, the point that I made last week was that no matter how good a speech he gave, if he was going to be going up against the split screen of Netanyahu meeting at the White House and having dinner at the White House and giving his own speech at APAC, which would be delivered flawlessly in, in perfect English and with all the applause lines that Netanyahu knows hit American Jews in their kishkas, that, you know, he was going to suffer. And he lucked out politically in... You know, in that, and I'm sure this is not something that he that he wished for, um, but the rockets from Gaza meant that Netanyahu had to go back early, didn't get to have his dinner at the White House, didn't even get to give his speech to APAC Live. Instead, he gave it, you know, via via satellite, and it was choppy, and there was a delay, and uh, Gantz didn't actually have to deal with the, the split screen issue. Yeah, I was just going to say you're mentioning uh, he's he's as good as any prime minister other than Netanyahu. Of course, we haven't had a prime minister other than Netanyahu in more than ten years, but he he did pretty well. And then the question was, how long did that last? Because a few hours later, he gave uh, a very choppy, somewhat bumbling, you would say, interview to Yonit Levy on primetime Israeli news, and the Likud party jumped right on that and has been. Uh, uh, running ads, basically ridiculing Gantz ever since. And the question is, how many Israelis are seeing the APAC presentation, which was, I, I think, impressive, as you said, uh, and how many Israelis are seeing that uh, Likud ad now going viral of Benny Gantz uh, repeating right. Yoni Levy's name uh, 17 times? <laughs> right. So there was that, that that sort of rained on his parade. There's also the fact that somebody inside of Kaholavan headquarters keeps on recording private conversations that take place inside of it between Gantz and right. Kahol Avan, uh employees and activists and, and releasing them. And it turns out that uh, Gantz you know, said something last week about how he's sure that, that Netanyahu 
if he could get away with it, would be sending assassins to kill him. Now, right. I'm sure he said that in jest, but you know, it's it's now on tape and has, and has been released, and so all these things add up uh, in a way that that is not great for Gon. So yes, he he. I thought he did a, a good job at APAC as as best as he could have been expected to do. But yeah, these other things keep on intruding. And it's also a reminder that um, Netanyahu has stumbled a bit recently, but I don't know that there's a better politician I've ever observed uh, at keeping on message as Netanyahu. And, you know, these types of mistakes that Gantz is making, they're normal and expected from any politician, particularly from right. a first-time politician from who's a, running from for a rookie, first yeah. time. right, right. right. Now, now he just doesn't make these. He doesn't make these types of mistakes, and it's right. one of the reasons why he's been there for a decade. He, he almost never slips off message, and when he does, you can be assured that you know something serious is going on. Right, and so then we have uh, the new situation, which was that in uh, uh, in Gaza, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, Netanyahu flies back with this uh, the the rocket attack uh, that landed in Kfar Saba, injuring seven people. I wonder what your take on the politics of to go to war or to not to go to war. Um, what benefits Bibi? It would seem, on the one hand, um, that Bibi benefits uh, from appearing tough against uh, Hamas, while th- but at the same time. Um, in many ways, he seems to be the somewhat responsible one that's not rushing to uh, uh, another war without clear objectives that could suck in the idea for a long, prolonged period of time. Uh, I'm curious your take. Right. So before we get to the politics, politics of it, you know, let's let's acknowledge that um, this is a this is a pretty difficult security situation for for any prime minister. No doubt. Uh, no doubt. And, you know, obviously the, the rockets coming out of Gaza are, are, are unacceptable. And that's sort of, you know, uh, leaving, leaving the politics aside, that's, you know, that's that's the baseline. Right. Um, Gaza has, has always been Netanyahu's soft underbelly because he he doesn't want to go in there and, and forcibly remove Hamas because it means the IDF having to actually reoccupy Gaza and administer Gaza. And that's something that even if Israel can do militarily, they don't want to do it. And so he has kind of relied on. Gaza being quiet and this notion of, you know, we trade, we trade quiet for quiet. Um, and so on the one hand, when things are quiet, he you know, can, can run on that. But because the fundamental situation in Gaza has not changed over the decade that Netanyahu has been prime minister, he's very vulnerable to Gaza exploding at any point and people saying, hey, you've been there for 10 years and you've, you've done nothing about this. You know, I think that on, on balance, so he's got to balance these two things, right? He's got to balance the criticism that he hasn't done anything to flip the script on Gaza against the fact that if he goes into Gaza in you know with full force and, and looks to really take Hamas out, it's going to be messy and it's going to take a long time and there are going to be rockets and attacks and that's the kind of thing that no prime minister wants to risk ever, but certainly not on the eve of elections. And I think it's one of the reasons why you see behind the scenes Netanyahu frantically coordinating with the Egyptians to try to get Hamas to basically keep things quiet or at least as quiet as they possibly can be for, for another, another few weeks. But he's in a difficult situation. And I think it's important to note that it's, again, it's not, it's not just the politics of it. I don't think any Israeli prime minister wants to see Gaza blow up in that way ever. And so, you know, in, in some ways he, in some ways, 
this is a result of BB being naturally cautious and risk averse, two things which which he is. But in some ways, um, it's also uh, it's also a reflection of the fact that he's kind of trying to be the responsible person on Gaza and and just hoping that hoping that things will stay quiet. And there's some people who will say, well, the responsible path would be to would be to go in and remove them entirely. I think that BB has a different security calculus, and I think that. He definitely has a different political calculus. Right. Well, the the complexity of this situation also makes it, uh, frankly, difficult on his opponents. I mean, if you see Benny Gantz being questioned in that interview I referenced earlier by Yoni Televi on Primetime News, um, there's not a convincing case for what uh, his political opponents would do any differently. Uh, Ayala Chiquette also was, was interviewed recently. Um, where their you know response on what they would do is simply use all 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 the capabilities of, of the IDF, and um, it's it, there's not a clear answer for uh, how the strategy would be any different, frankly. And I think that also um, uh, you know lends itself to maintaining calm rather than creating this explosion that then folks could create various uh, elements of, of criticizing the various strategy that Netanyahu tries to employ. Yeah, 100%. And to that point about other politicians and what, what they would or would not do, you know, so uh, Bennett and Shaked don't really don't really have a, a good alternative. Neither do Gonsal Lapid. But in some ways, um, the most ridiculous response comes from Avi Gabay, who, you know, has been hitting Netanyahu on this from the right, you know, criticizing the payments that they've allowed in from the Qataris and the fact that he hasn't gone in there and, take out and, and, right. and taken out Hamas directly. Right. You know, the idea that, that, that Avi Gabay in labor would, would go in there full force is just, it's absurd. And I think it, it rings hollow. And I think anybody looking at this situation objectively needs to understand that Netanyahu really is in a, is in a tough spot and that, you know, the, the lie that so many, so many people like to tell themselves is that, Gaza can be solved really easily. You know, you just go in there and you take out Hamas. Well, it's really not that simple at all. And, uh, you know, Netanyahu, like I said, he's in a tough spot. And I don't know that, I mean, there is a, I, I think there is a better way of handling this, but it isn't to go more hawkish. I think it's, you know, to, to along the lines of what the, the CNAS Brookings Gaza task force that we were both on ultimately recommended. I think it's along the lines of, Recognizing that Hamas is there, it's not going away. The old strategy that's been tried for a decade has failed. Israel doesn't want to go in and take him out. And so, you know, maybe it's time to risk going the other way and opening things up a bit. And then if that doesn't work, then you reassess because then you have one, you know, you have two different failed policies and, and then you can try something else. But Bibi's in a tough spot and um, I don't I don't envy him. I was going to say, Michael, that was a phenomenal job of, of uh, plugging the Gaza study that we worked on and have been promoting. Uh, my 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 less smooth uh, plug will be that we're uh, doing a program next week in JCC of Palo Alto on Gaza strategies and solutions. And if you're in Palo Alto area, come on out uh, April 2nd. Um, OK, moving on. Uh, I read a really good op ed in The New York Times last week. I don't know if you saw it. Um, oh, it was yours. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw I saw some. I think it was on Friday, I'm sorry. maybe. I'm sorry, that was a total dad joke. Um, so, <laughs> the Golan, the other big issue of last week. Um, I think when we issued our statement, we made it very clear the concern that this was going to very quickly lead to calls um, to accept West Bank annexation as well. Something that we're very obviously uh, uh, deeply concerned about that. 
And in the last 24, 48 hours, that's, of course, what we're beginning to see uh, in calls from the Israeli right and in remarks attributed by The New York Times to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, is this a train that's now leaving the station? Are we destined to see annexation of the West Bank as the next step after the Golan? Your, t- your take. So uh, for the, those of our listeners who uh, who only listen to the podcast and don't read, read our material, right, right. Um, David's allusion is to the fact that uh, I had an op-ed in the New York Times on Friday arguing that uh, U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan was going to very evidently pave the way for West Bank annexation for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, I urge you all to go to the New York Times website and, and read it. Um, and indeed, you know, we have an article in the New York Times just today where uh, you know Netanyahu um, said at the White House that uh, at the at the Golan ceremony that uh, when you start wars of aggression, you lose territory. Do, do not come and claim it afterwards. It, it belongs to us. And then he landed at Ben Gurion Airport on Tuesday and said, uh, "You know, this is a direct quote. Everyone says you can't hold an occupied territory, but this proves you can. If occupied in a defensive war, then it's ours. And this is precisely the problem." The, the situations on the Golan and the West Bank, in my mind, are entirely different. And I'm actually, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument about the Golan that Syria did launch a war against Israel and the Golan you know, was and is strategically critical to Israel's security and Syria lost it. And, you know, by the way, Syria only had the Golan um, as a result of, uh, you know, a, a deal made when, when borders were were uh, redrawn after after World War One, so you know it's not like this is this was sort of uh, clear clear territory in any event. But the problem with all of this is precisely that the Israeli right wants to annex the West Bank. They are they're open about it. They're clear about it. They've been saying it repeatedly. It's been a feature of the campaign in Likud, in Hayamina Hadash, in Bar Yehudi, and before the Golan recognition. You had Naftali Bennett and Yuli Edelstein and others saying one of the reasons it's important to recognize the Golan as sovereign Israeli territory is so that we can then move down the road toward West Bank annexation. And lo and behold, you now have the prime minister not saying it out, you know, not saying it overtly, but in every single way kind of hinting and, and you know, dog whistling to this idea that Golan annexation and the recognition of that means that they can now do the same thing in the West Bank. And if that happens, you know, anybody, anybody who listens to us or reads us or has been involved with Israel Policy Forum in any way knows or should know what a disaster that would be. And, right. You know, We've been somewhat, somewhat obsessed with that issue. That's true. Yes. Absolutely. And for good reason. And I think the good reason is, is that so few really realize what the implications are. I think it's interesting in the last 24 hours we, we heard uh, remarks from Secretary Pompeo that uh, denied that the Golan set a precedent for uh, other areas as well. Uh, but we also saw the speech to AIPAC by David Friedman in which he essentially um, said that this must this is the administration uh, that will provide the guarantee for Israel to have full security in the West Bank um, and gave a speech that lend itself to those who may uh, – you know, lend itself to the view that the Trump administration will naturally uh, not oppose annexation, certainly partial annexation, um, if not annexation uh, uh, more broadly um, extending beyond the blocks. And there's also, frankly, a a question about the uh, awareness of uh, the Israeli public, let alone policymakers in Washington, about what the implications of that uh, kind of move 
would be that once that train has left the station, it is very, very difficult to stop it. Um, and that's really been the, the core of our messaging. Uh, but it definitely seems that that train may now be revving up, and which I find deeply, deeply concerning. Right. And, and the signaling here is, is worrisome. And, and it's important to note because it's, it's so far, it's indirect signaling, right? So there are all these things that we can read in to what the Trump administration is doing, you know, whether the Golan Heights recognition is, you know, a, a winking or a blinking, a blinking green light uh, toward West Bank annexation and whether Friedman's speech is a blinking green light toward West Bank annexation. But we don't know for sure. And and at this point, you know, I I, I would love to see folks all over the place, not only uh, in Congress, but American Jewish organizations and, and everybody say to the Trump administration, issue issue some clarity one way or the other, right? If you're okay with West Bank annexation, then say it straight out. And then we kind of know exactly what we're dealing with. And if you're not okay with West Bank annexation, say it straight out so the Israeli government doesn't misread the signals that they think they're getting from you. But, you know, the the most dangerous period in any policy discussion is when you have uncertainty and when the signals are not clear. And in this case, maybe the Israeli government knows privately what the signals are, but publicly the signals right now are, are very ambiguous. And I would love to see clarity to that. Obviously, I prefer the clarity go in one direction versus the other. But if the Trump administration is okay with West Bank annexation, I would love for them to come out and, and say it directly. Right. And I, I, I tend to agree with you that this is a time certainly that we'll be working on mobilizing voices to uh, speak to the danger. Because I think this is really a moment where, um, you know, support for two states needs to be more than a slogan. Um, right. And there's nothing that, uh, you know, for years we've been saying that unilateral actions that undermine two states are unhelpful. And there's no unilateral action that more obviously unhelpful um, than basically taking the idea uh, <laughs> of uh, uh, territorial compromise off the table. Um, yeah, and, and, and yeah. by the way, uh, we should, you know, in, in, in the interest of um, some more uh, kind of uh, <laughs> some more some more naked uh, organizational promotion, I think we should note that uh, Israel Policy Forum is one of the the co-signers of a letter that went to. Uh, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Kevin McCarthy just yesterday uh, opposing uh, in support of the the House resolution uh, that is before Congress that um, expressed expresses opposition to BDS, but also critically support for two states and support for a negotiated solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And that was a letter that was organized by ADL and that we signed alongside ADL and AG, AJC. Uh, and JCPA and JFNA and a whole host of, of other organizations. Other alphabet soup, uh, yeah. Yes, the alphabet soup of, of organizations. And so, you know, this is an important letter out there that ex- that explicitly uh, confirms the the support among the American Jewish community for two states. But I think that it's important for the American Jewish community and for Congress to keep on emphasizing that not only support for two states, but opposition to annexation which is entirely outside of that framework and which will destroy any future for two states whatsoever. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's got to go beyond the, the sloganeering into, into actual action. Uh, 100%. So Michael, um, what are you writing about this week? Not sure yet. <laughs> um, but I think, I think in light of uh, some of the stuff we just discussed, 
uh, I'm certainly going to going to write uh, a little bit about Gaza and um, Netanyahu's Netanyahu's dilemma, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe I'll try to wrap wrap in something there about uh, Benny Gantz and, and APAC as well. Um, kind of both along the lines of the uh, the, the the lies that, the lies that we tell ourselves about um, sort of Gaza being easy and you know the the American Jewish relationship with with Israel being easy, and that there there are simple solutions to anything. So you're heading to Israel when like in a couple days, right? Yeah, I'm headed to Israel uh, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, so I'm so. curious, what what are the kinds of questions that you're going to be looking uh, to to answer in the next couple of weeks but between now uh, and April nine, the Israeli election? So primarily, I you know I'm, I'm going to be there obviously right before right before and through the elections. So um, I definitely want to get a, a sense from on the ground of you know what people are feeling and talking about and thinking. You, you know, you can you can get a sense. Here, from reading the Israeli press every day and, and looking at the polls, but it's you know you know it's not it's not the same as, as obviously being on the ground. So I'm, I'm going to go to you know as many kind of campaign events and rallies as I can while I'm there to to get a firsthand sense. Um, I'm also going to be talking to as many folks as I can about annexation in particular and try to get a handle on this question of whether Israelis are aware of. You know just how imminent this threat is, but more importantly, when when they talk about applying sovereignty to Judean Samaria or annexation of the West Bank, to what extent Israelis actually actually understand what that what that means and sort of how they interpret it? You know, because when somebody says partial annexation, maybe one person in their head has all of Area C, and one person in their head might have Malajamim, and one person in their head might think that means in the context of of an agreement where you annex where you annex the blocks. So. Um, and, and, then, been polls, and then what are the blocks? Yeah, right. And there pulls out all over the place. You know, the, some show very little support for annexation. Some show alarmingly high support for annexation. And I, you know, I suspect it's because the questions are, are designed to be so open ended that the people, you know, have all, all sorts of different ideas about what that means. So right. I'm gonna, uh, as best as I can try to try to get a handle on that. And um, you know, while I'm there, I'm meeting with as many journalists and think tankers and security folks as I can, and uh, we'll, we'll see what emerges. And uh, have you started writing a book yet? As you know, I have started writing a book. Woohoo! So this is the, this is the part where if we had, you know, like radio capabilities, we'd like, we'd, we'd have like party music going on. <laughs> yeah, we got to work on that for next time. <laughs> yes, as, as you know, I have. Now, and now that we're, we're talking about it publicly, it's like more pressure on you to, 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 to get it done. Yes, I know. I'm really it's, laying it on thick. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is this has been your goal all along. So you know, I, I'm not going to discuss the, the book until I'm a little farther the ways down. But yes, I, I, have, That's fair. I, I have started. I have started researching and writing, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll be in a position to talk about it more extensively. Awesome! Soon. I'm thrilled. That's really, really cool. All right, cool. So uh, have a good trip. I don't know uh, if we'll do a podcast before the elections, but there will be other podcasts certainly yes. from our team before the elections. But maybe not. Maybe not the two of us. But anyway, safe travels. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye.